1: like how you get to do the intro on my talk.
0: It's uh, the 32nd Addiction Connection talk.
1: It is, and I'm really super excited about this one. And we're going a little bit away from the seriousness like Hepatitis C last week and kind of delving into the person known as the godfather of ecstasy.
0: Yeah, so Alexander... Sasha. Sasha Shulgin... Uh, He's a guy that we actually learned about uh, from Charlie Resnikoff, had him in a a talk. And and I wasn't aware that this was a guy that spent a lot of time just experimenting, making different drugs in his garage. (laughs) This
1: dude was super cool. So he was born in 1925 in Berkeley, California. His parents were both just public school teachers. So at the age of seven, he just randomly walked into a local chemist shop and asked for some sodium bicarb and a bunch of other weird chemicals and just started playing with some chemical and chemistry type stuff way back then.
0: Yeah, that's usually how a fire starts, but (laughs) apparently did not.
1: Right. Or, you know, cats' tails get burned or whatever. He
0: spoke Russian and
1: French on top of English, played three instruments. Like, this dude was pretty smart.
0: Well, I'd be pretty average in my family.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Right. They say, actually, there's reports that his IQ, although never tested, was up there with Einstein. So, I but, mean, let's let's put that into perspective.
0: Yeah, but obviously, if he was experimenting with these things, his, his IQ had to have dropped.
1: You know, that is a great question. I wonder if they ever did it. I didn't see any research on that. By
0: but, the end, he was wearing a diaper, probably. But anyway, right. go ahead. So, Talk you about know, his he's, he's
1: obviously pretty smart. So he started majoring in organic chemistry at Harvard. And the beginning of his sophomore year, he had just turned eighteen. So I mean, he started Harvard as a youngin. Um, and he loved to join the U.S. Navy. Um, served in World War II. Actually, this is kind of comical. A little bit of a side. So he got this horrible thumb infection in the Navy.
0: Uh, which thumb, right or left? I don't even know. Okay,
1: but. In order to do surgery, they gave him some orange juice thing that had some weird, you know, sediment at the bottom. And he thought, oh, my gosh, this must be a huge sedative. And he said he fell asleep, had no problems during surgery. Asked the nurse after the fact what it was. It was just sugar. Like, Hmm. hello, placebo effect. Um but he was a kind of one of the first people to comment on morphine as far as, like, a pain reliever as far as after having the surgery. And it just really made him not care about the pain. He could feel it but just didn't care about it.
0: Mm, I thought, I liked the thing he said where he said, you know, morphine depersonalizes the pain. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. So.
1: And depersonalizes everything.
0: But he was a family man, Heather.
1: Family man, sort of. Um. Yeah, so he had a lot of degrees, though, by the way. Psych, biochemistry, pharmacology, all in California. So he was married first to this lady named Nina. She died in 1978 of a stroke. Actually had a son um, who really nobody ever talks about. But he didn't die until 2011, but he died from cancer of something. And then oh, he Probably
0: met... from hanging around that garage, really <laughs> mixing all these chemicals. Oh, my
1: gosh, you guys. Hearing about this, this garage description, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, is... Very interesting. But then he meets the love of his life, Ann Perry. Ann and him literally lived this amazing love story, mostly accompanied with a lot of chemicals. Um, Mm. This was her fourth marriage. Wow. I don't know. She had four kids. Eventually, they had about eight grandkids. Um, She was huge into psychedelics. And the picture that I'm looking at of her right now, she just looks like this sweet old grandma. Um,
0: She's kind of described as a psychedelic enthusiast. Isn't
1: that great? I've seen
0: people that are like, you know, hot balloon enthusiasts, but never psychedelic enthusiasts.
1: She was interesting, and we'll get to that, I think, in the next podcast when we talk more about the ecstasy, but it is fabulous. So he was pretty smart, though. He worked for a couple different chemical companies. Uh, the most renowned was Dow Chemical, where he actually was the first person to develop a um, safe biodegradable pesticide super highly profitable so they kind of let him do whatever he wanted but at the same time he was kind of developing this amazing pesticide he started trying mescaline and Mm. he learned at that time that there was so much more to be known about himself and the world that you know something deep in the brain he thought that he had never ever in a million years thought anyone would ever have known without this amazing drug
0: huh i'm not sure i'm buying it
1: Uh, and so you know they let him kind of get away with all this he wrote a lot of I mean he's been basically published in every journal known to man about chemistry and psychedelic drugs that you can imagine Mm. Um, the problem is is in the 60s while working for Dow Chemical kind of let him do whatever he wanted Um, that's when like the street drug stuff and people started to question all these weird drugs on the streets and so they actually asked him to stop doing his on-the-side research in his garage because they <laughs> thought it was going to be some, like, weird bad press.
0: Yeah, all these kids in the neighborhood with, like, extra fingers. It's like, they, <laughs> yeah. Got I that from though, Sasha. Like,
1: who paid for this lab? Do you think Dow Chemical accidentally paid for this lab, not even realizing it?
0: It's probably like, hey, we're going to throw out that chem analyzer. Anybody want it? Right. Oh, he Sasha. had a
1: chromatographer in his garage. Well,
0: um, to be clear, I had one, too, but.
1: Yeah, I'm sure he did. Anyway, he did a lot of independent things. He did some research and consulting on different drug things. He taught classes. So I'm assuming this is how he paid for his life after that. Mm. He was a huge speaker. He spoke everywhere. Although it was funny, the one place I read about it right before a speech he gave, he was like so anxious. And then he got up there and he just like rambled on and on and on and on. Just interesting for being this like prolific, amazing researcher who is mm. super into psychedelics. He clearly didn't take a psychedelic before he spoke.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Some of these speaking things, you know, Mind States Conference. Right. I've never been to one of those. The
1: Burning Man play-a-logs. Yeah. Burning Man, those still happen. Really? Have you never heard of the Burning Man Conference? Uh, no. All right. Never you should. Heard of it chat with some of your patients about this. The Burning Man. It's amazing. So,
0: and he wrote books.
1: But he also was in the, sorry, the super elite club with like Dick Cheney.
0: Were they, hunting buddies? Because Dick Cheney shot a lot of people.
1: Anyway, but ironically, I I have to point this out because we don't want to make this guy sound totally psychedelic and crazy. He really never sold any of these you know, designer drugs he developed for any type of a profit. He just did research on them to try to classify them as far as, like, what they would do and all of that. So, anyway, yes, books.
0: He wrote books. I think he's had a couple that were more kind of big hits. You know, a lot of them were, like, eh. But uh, he's got that— A lot of
1: them were, like, super political— not political, but, like, structured by somebody else who told them how to write it.
0: Yeah, I think if— I was going to write a book. It probably wouldn't be called Phenylethamines, I Have Known and Loved, A Chemical Love Story. Isn't that great? Yeah. PECOL.
1: Basically talked about all these phenylethamines. And ironically, if you possess this book in your, you know, if you have it in your presence in some other countries, that's a crime. You can get arrested for having this book in your possession. It's like
0: break into your house. It's amazing. Oh, you've got PECOL.
1: So yeah, that was early 90s. Later 90s, he wrote the second one.
0: Is that TECOL? (laughs) <laughs> so that's the Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved, a continuation. It's amazing. Yeah, so what's left of his brain at this point?
1: I don't know, because that book really focused on all the tryptamines, so things like LSD, DMT, and I can go on and on about DMT, man. If you've ever seen a DMT high, go and YouTube. I haven't seen one, sorry, but patients have said go YouTube DMT. It is makes me nauseous watching it, but... Yeah. Yeah, and then a bunch of other books that he, you know, co-wrote with people. He wrote a book that was basically like the Merck Index that we use in medicine on drugs, but his version.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine be a huge seller. It's kind of a niche.
1: I don't know. You know, all these what are they called, psychonauts? Yeah, psychonauts. Psychonauts, and of course, his followers.
0: You know, one of the things he was known for in the in that small arena was really his new creations, right?
1: Right. So he would get these inklings or people would tell him, let's test this. Or he, I mean, again, he was an amazing chemist. And so he would take something that was known, use the chemistry set that I use in college or, you know, whatever that you get on Amazon and create a new, you know, substance. And then rather than just doing it, and he gave them all like weird names and numbers, but they would actually test on him. He would test it on himself, And over time when he was having all these great experiences, you know, obviously Anne, his wife, was all in on it right away. But then he started to get friends and he'd have groups of like a dozen people sitting in. So, I mean, if you're going to be a good scientific researcher and a good scientist, you got to come up with some type of a rating scale or something to really judge it by that has more of an objective scale rather than just all... I mean, wow, I, man, that was cool!
0: I think you know, mixing up stuff in your garage and testing it and then on your friends—really, what could go wrong? <laughs> I know. I mean,
1: I just, I, I, I can't even. I, you know, I have you know those jelly beans that taste like—you take a white one and it could be
0: tastes like puke. Tastes
1: like coconut, and the other white one tastes like yeah, vomit or dirty socks. I, I can't even imagine doing with random drugs, but yeah.
0: Well.
1: Anyway, so there is this Shulgin rating scale, which there's a whole book that's microfiche study on this. It's amazing. So this was actually kind of patented in 1986. It's described in that PCOL book we already mentioned. But they go through, there's there's five different scales. You can get a zero, plus one, two, three, or four. And there's a graph on this picture. Y'all can't see it, but what this actually means for different drugs And obviously a minus score would be nothing actually happened. It was kind of lame.
0: Yeah, this is confusing to me that you could be doing this and testing it on people and, well, that that could be legal. I don't know.
1: Well, I I mean. I can't imagine
0: somebody didn't care.
1: Well, I mean, they're your friends and they're saying, hey, dude, I want in.
0: I I I mean, I hate to be a negative Nelly, but I'm I'm a negative Nelly on this one. So his rating scale was really, I don't know, just a way for him to kind of. Kind of judge the experience is what you're saying.
1: It is. But the one couple points I want to point out about this. So a minus, like I said, doesn't have anything. And you have plus one and plus or plus minus is this like eh, gray zone and then plus one. But when you get to plus two, it's kind of neat because I guess the plus two score is you're in the middle of this some type of didn't mute your phone experience where you're kind of in this high or in this little kind of weird land but you still have the ability to make a choice. Do I want to continue this cool thing or do I want to go back and like fold my laundry? I mean, that's kind of how they described it. You are allowed to choose. Once you hit tr- step three, plus three in this score, you're like gone. But when you hit a plus four, this is what they call this divine transformation. It's this huge transcendental state, the state of samadhi, which is some type of Buddhist something apparently, um, I mean, the descriptions of these, of his plus four writing is phenomenal.
0: You lost me when you said divine experience. <laughs> I, I thought somehow it was me, but no. But mind. what I
1: find really interesting, and I want to make a parallel to you know opioids, which we do a lot of, is if you hit a plus four experience with one of his substances or any of these substances... You will not necessarily be able to reach that same plus four with subsequent ingestion. So it's kind of like that whole chasing the chasing the dragon phenomenon.
0: Uh, get, you get your one hit wonder, and then it kind of kind of, which is off.
1: interesting. And I, there wasn't a ton of research that I could. I, I focused on this in my research because I was like, wait a minute, there wasn't a lot stated on if you don't use substance whatever for a month. If you go back, does it give you that same experience or not? It didn't. There, I couldn't find much.
0: Mm. Well, of course, it looks like he even made videos, him and his wife. Oh well, gosh. and I mean videos where they discussed the things <laughs> about.
1: Um, yes. About the <laughs> rating scale. They actually discussed this. There's a, a YouTube video at nine minutes discussing the Shulgin scale. And in this video, they're like in their 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's so. like my grandparents like, <laughs> yeah, so then
0: I injected this stuff. And, yeah, I just totally lost it and had to wear a diaper for two days. I mean, it, the, the picture of him is like two it's like two nursing home patients <laughs> talking about the Schogren scale. It,
1: it, it totally is. Okay. Not Schogren's.
0: Schogren. Schogren.
1: Okay, so one drug, and we're going to talk about some of the specifics of the drugs he created next week on that podcast. But I'm going to touch on one drug right now because it is one that kind of showed that it doesn't always end up amazingly. And so there was this Peccasiris pringlii, some random cactus. That there was some anthropologist who studied cave paintings way back in Mexico. And this was described in these cave paintings that this cactus must have some psychoactive properties. So they brought it to him and said, hey, figure this out. Because you know what that tells me? No. That anthropologist was way smarter than Sasha. Because he didn't want to do it himself. He made Sasha
0: do it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, how many times have we heard that people that were like mixing up their own stuff and then they were dead? Right. So I'm amazed that Sasha lived this long.
1: Right. And so he of course was a good scientist first and studied it through his chromatographer chromatography kind of stuff and it said, well, it's going to be a mild psychedelic blah blah blah. And so him and his wife and 10 other friends decided, "Hey, we're going to do this." No one had tried this before in this, you know, time frame. And so, of course, he took this cactus extract, mixed it into fruit juice, and they all got four ounces and downed it. There was 12 total people. Six of them got horrifically, violently ill, and half of them had, like, a pleasant but kind of boring experience. Yeah. So, how he rated it, though, even though, like, there were two extremes, was this was an inconclusive psychedelic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, It was described as going awry. Going awry. Finally, Sasha went awry.
1: Which was the cool part because he and his wife were like two of the sickest. He felt that like he had this fear of that he was moving and there was just all these like waves in the walls and it was just very disturbing to him. And he was 77, of course, at the time he did this. I mean, that's almost your age. Would you ever do that? Yeah,
0: what he didn't say was he also wet himself and that didn't make the paper. Yeah, and his wife actually
1: made this comment that she just— felt that this moon was, like, causing this contempt to her, and she just felt like this was a, quote, awful, stupid way to die.
0: Yeah, well, I would agree. agree.
1: So, anyway, we're going to, again, touch on all these drugs. There's one more I want to mention in this podcast before we kind of hit his downfall is this medication or this drug called the adrenochrome, and there's not a ton of information. He studied it in his, you know, stepdaughter, so Anne's daughter, Wendy, when she was 36 at the time. They studied this drug. Basically, it's some version of adrenaline, which, of course, we all have in our system. And they, excess can lead to this whole big brain dysfunction. So, obviously, something we should all be doing. But what he had recommended, which has not yet been done, is that people should use this drug, and I don't know, on people or animals, to really study schizophrenia, Mm. you know, this whole brain dysfunction thing. But uh, it hasn't obviously picked up on much, but yeah. And then... And then there were the haters.
0: There were haters. There was
1: a lot of people who obviously called him Frankenstein and all these things that he was just ruining the youth of the world. Um, this was my absolute favorite quote from a hater. And then we can move on to his DEA experience. Uh-huh. Um, he said going to, to Sasha to kind of get like help and experiences was like going to an insane asylum and asking the inmates about mental health.
0: Ah, uh, neat. <laughs> Anyway, go so, to the DEA. So, pretty surprisingly, <laughs> at some point, the DEA caught a whiff of what Sasha was doing. But were they after him? Mm-hmm. Not right away. No, they just they wanted to know what he knew. Right. He- it's like bringing that computer hacker into work for the FBI.
1: That's a great analogy
0: yeah, with him. With the well, DEA. that's what I've done with my computer <laughs> hacking skills.
1: He can turn it on and maybe log in. Yeah. Um, so he actually did a lot of chemical analyses, so they'd find, you know, chemicals at different scenes and he would analyze them and tell the DEA what they were. He testified in court cases, got a bunch of awards. Yeah, well, how do you
0: get an award for that? It's like here, I'm gonna pin this award on you. <laughs> you figured out another weird drug. Yeah. But I mean It's a weird drug award.
1: But not only that, but he he wrote a book that the DEA used legal guide and federal drug laws in 1988 and then again in 1982 but not only that this dude in his weird garage lab got a schedule one license from the DEA so he got permission to have a lab that analyzed all these weird schedule one drugs which if you don't remember the schedules schedule one drugs mean that nobody can study it you can't have it in your possession you go you you don't pass go you go right to jail
0: yeah (laughs) this just gets weirder and uh Uh, Yeah, this random guy who's a garage chemist, the DEA just gives him, like, a blank check. Knock yourself out, Sasha.
1: Yeah, so then in 1986, there was this random federal analog act. So they realized that all these drugs he was creating and others... um, Called them what? Designer drugs.
0: That's where designer drugs came from. Exactly.
1: So basically, you couldn't... They weren't limited based on Schedule 1s because they hadn't been named. And so... There's all these ambiguities. So that's kind of what Sasha lived for was the ambiguities.
0: They lived right in that gray zone. Gray zone. Mm. Finally. 1994. 1994 when yep. you were,
1: what, 30 already and I was, you know, Like they busted. out.
0: They've known he have been there for like 30 years, and they probably bust his door down when they could have just opened it. Right. And well, they
1: had done previous announced yeah. visits yeah. without any troubles. But this one...
0: Yeah, like lots of fire eight engines. Eight vehicles. Decontamination <laughs> units.
1: Do you think they wore hazmat suits?
0: Probably. He probably like, oh, this one isn't going to work. The goes behind the garage, just pours it on the ground. Right. They or probably,
1: like threw it in their faces, like try this. And they all are like, hey, Sasha, let's hug.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like they just dumped it on the ground. They probably had to clean all the dirt all the way around his garage. But yeah. yeah. So it was a big deal. Okay. And... Yeah.
1: But the decontamination. So let me describe his lab based on a couple of different things I read. He had random spiders everywhere, cobwebs, dirt. It was it was exactly what you would picture in a back garage. Not in a fancy like man cave garage, but like in a back dirty dark garage lit by like one light bulb. I mean,
0: with a million dollar chromatography. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so 1994. Yeah. After this raid.
0: Yeah, they wanted 25 grand to get Get the DEA off of their back. So he had to pay up.
1: And that's because when they raided him, they found all these non-requested samples. So again, he had this license from the DEA, but he was only allowed in his Schedule One lab to run things that they gave him permission to run, and then they found all these other drugs.
0: Oh, he probably just... At that point, he was demented. He probably went, I thought you said I could do that. <laughs>
1: so really, all that he did was he paid this fine, gave away his license, and said, whatever, I'm just going to not work with scheduled things again. So then he just did these designer things that didn't have a schedule placed on them. Mm. So anyway, basically what happened is Arrowhead kind of took over. So when he was working for the DEA, a lot of what he found could be published and studied and put on their website, and everyone could learn about these drugs. And then when he lost his DEA thing and all of this happened, um, a lot of people got arrested, not him. And so that's when Arrowhead...
0: Was developed. Dot org. Dot org. Yeah, and so basically that's his legacy, is Arrowwood. And we occasionally look at Arrowwood.
1: We do. I mean, it's great. It describes exactly what happens with all these random chemicals you order from anywhere around the world.
0: Yeah. But then Sasha started to go downhill. Yeah, I mean. Sad music cue.
1: He didn't die until 2014. I mean, so he was, uh, what, 87-ish. Um, He ended up having somewhere in there a stroke, he had some dementia, I wonder why, but I mean he was in his 80s before he hit dementia, I mean that's crazy to me Yeah, he
0: might have lived a lot longer though, maybe he was a guy destined to live to be 100
1: I mean, but he already made 80 But then he got terminal
0: liver cancer, didn't see that coming.
1: (laughs) I know, I read that, I was like oh good lord.
0: Yeah, let's see, how many different million drugs have I adjusted?
1: I mean surprisingly he passed away with Buddhist meditation music Hmm Um, His obituary is actually online still. You can find it. And he is, there's a whole word bubble that I put together of every positive word you can possibly imagine um, about him. I mean, you know, I think if I'm going to, if I'm going to end and of course what he did is just crazy. And to think that this could even happen. And again, more pictures, which if you Google him, you'll see all sorts of chemicals and pictures of his labs, but
0: He seemed like a fun guy.
1: Fun fun guy. Fun guy. That's ironic when we're going to be talking about some of these other drugs in the next podcast, but this dude was so smart. Yeah. Like, think of all the things he could have developed.
0: That were more useful. And legal. And legal. So, anyway. Yeah. So, amazing thing, you know. Obviously, a really amazingly smart guy. Did a lot of amazing things but really was probably the godfather of designer drugs more than anything.
1: So who knows what's all happened because of what he's developed. And next week we will actually talk about the 12 most important drugs he designed, synthesized, and took, as well as a lot of the complications that resulted in some of these drugs. So they're not, again, all positive things. Um, so for now we will let Battlelegs take over and we will chat with you next week.
0: Will they say the world's your oyster ma'am, but... Oysters ain't for me You're the bell of the ball But you ain't my cup of tea They always vote you best in show But this dog doggy disagrees Cause I like life in Paddy's pub There's a place for me, it's the place I go Where the beer is cheap and the lights are low, it's Thanksgiving.